this is episode 008 of the Strong Indie Podcast. I am Justin Harder, and it's just me here today because my good friends Austin Gibble uh, is sick and Jim Hodap is on vacation. However, I am joined by uh, Indianapolis City County Councilor Colleen Fanning, who is the counselor for Indianapolis's second district. Hello, Colleen. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So your district is kind of the north side area. Most commonly, people would probably associate it with Broad Ripple, right? Yeah, not just Broad Ripple, though. Glendale, Nora, Greenbrier, Meridian Hills, Meridian Kessler. Lots of lots of great neighborhoods. Nora. Sure. <laughs> Last but not least, not definitely Nora. So as far as, as district size goes compared to other districts, is it larger? Is it about well, average or smaller than others? Each di- each district covers 40,000 people. I would say area-wise, it's probably average. Yeah. It's a fairly dense district, but um, yeah, I-, I would say it's probably average in area. But yeah, we each represent about 40,000 people. So there's a lot going on in your district. There's a lot going on in a lot of districts, but there's particularly always a lot going on in... So much. So much <laughs> in your district. And um, you've got kind of an interesting makeup of your district up there because so much of your your voters are very independent, right? Extremely. And so as as districts go, uh, your your voters typically kind of go within that like 49 to 51%. It's not like others where it's like 80% Democrat and 20% Republican or vice versa or no. even 60-40. Yours is very consistently it's near pretty 50-50. Much, it's pretty much 50-50 with the margin of error. In the last municipal election, my district elected or voted for Mayor Hogsett democrat and myself a republican so it's it's a lot of people um cross the aisle when they vote sure. and are very independently minded yeah does that does that worry you this year or does that look like something that's a benefit to you considering the current political climate yeah, off years that sort it of doesn't thing? worry me i you know there's so many variables that are going to be outside my control so i'm just going to keep doing my job i mean there's no sense in getting worried about it but you know it's i'm the same as i was when i ran i think i've I've done what I said I was going to do, and I just want to keep going. So I'm not concerned, but, you know, anything can happen on Election Day. Sure. You can't take anything for granted. So what were some of those things that you said that you were going to do? Like, what are some of the things that – because you've been on the council now for a couple of terms, right? Just one term. Just one I'm term? I'm just rounding out my first term, okay. yeah. Okay. And so, like, what yeah. are some of the things that you look back on? And like, I kind of oh, had yeah, three foci. So, um, you know, thoughtful economic development mm-hmm. was, you know, number one on the list. Um, improving public safety and – especially improving the education and awareness in my district, as well as, you know, making community policing and communication across stakeholders more of a priority. And then last but not least, infrastructure improvement, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about mm-hmm. today. So I feel like we've had a lot of really good progress in that area. I'm waiting on some numbers from DPW to get my total dollar amount of infrastructure improvement, but I wouldn't be surprised if we were, you know, in the top three districts in terms of the amount of improvements. And honestly, when I'm talking about improvements, I'm generally saying maintenance. Sure. Because in our city, there's not a lot of new not a lot of new infrastructure happening. happening. Yeah. We just have to kind of fix our old. So I actually kind of wanted to touch on this a little bit, um, which is that as, as districts go and as regions of the city, it is sometimes perceived by people, certainly I think around the outer ring suburbs, I think like Southwest side or far Northwest side, these sorts of things. But even among people who live maybe on the straight East side or the West side, I think gets it probably a little bit more that if there's some new thing coming to town, that it, why does it always feel like it lands on the north side, specifically in that like college meridian corridor between like here and Nora? Yeah, I, I would say the answer to that is that we are kind of sandwiched between, you know, the the most dense part of the county, which is the downtown core, and then all of the northern suburbs, 
which so you just like you get a benefit from just shooting. I think we just get yeah, we get the cross traffic. I mean, that's also why we have the most infrastructure maintenance needs because we get one hundred percent of the impact of that north side commute every day. And and right. you know, people who live in the donut counties aren't paying one dollar of their taxes into our county to, you know, pay for our roads, pay for our public services like police and fire. So so we get the benefit of that, but we also it's definitely a double edged sword. So So how do you feel about those commuters overall? Because there's there's a couple of plans floating around out there. For a while there was uh, a plan floated by the Central Indiana Council of Elected Officials, which is generally speaking, uh, all the mayors and, and, and town presidents from surrounding counties and communities, um, plus the mayor of Indianapolis, um, that kind of came together and put together a proposal that included things like, okay, well, if we raise some money and do some, basically, what, what's a, what does a regional tax look like and what does that funding mechanism look like? And does it go for things beyond just roads, like, for example, parks? And so that plan... I think went a little further and said, yeah, I should include things like parks and other infrastructure, maybe like water sewer, that sort of stuff. And then Mayor Hogsett kind of hops out and says, yeehaw, here's a tax. Like, I think, I think Carmel should pay for, <laughs> for the new sewer system in Broad Ripple or wherever. And that seems to have gone over exactly as anybody would have expected. <laughs> and so kind of what is your general um, thought about these two plans and, and what Mayor Hogsett is proposing and kind of where you see yeah. the reality of this situation. That's a good that's a good question. So I joke with my constituents all the time that we're just gonna put toll booths at ninety six the Meridian Very and good. call it a day. But yep. you know, that's would that's, they be on the roundabout <laughs> or would they be like on the ramp off the highway? Well Meridian <laughs> I'm still waiting for the roundabout at Meridian and ninety six. Okay. This is not, it's more like a clover, but yeah, that that's not going anywhere. You know, I think we we have to think regionally at least about our infrastructure tax structure because Indianapolis just gets kind of screwed on every level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more importantly, and I'm, I will be supportive of whatever regional efforts, you know, make sense and what the, the CICEO, which is mm-hmm. a really clunky, um, acronym, it's whatever they come up yeah, with, sure. um, you know, we've got some really good regional mayors, so I'm confident that they'll come up with something good and that that will be worth supporting. But I think we really need to address it at the state level. Oh, yeah, I mean, this has to be a state level it, thing. I it, mean, how do you create even, a new tax? Yeah, even the regional legally? tax. But I yeah. really think the entire structure for the state needs to change. And that really comes down to the lane mile ratio. The lane oh, mile yeah. ratio is why we're why every yeah. urban community is going to get penalized and has been. And it's why every single metropolitan community in Indianapolis, Indianapolis of, or in Indiana, Indianapolis obviously being the largest by a lot Mm -hmm. is just losing ground year over year Mm -hmm. over year. You know, I like to liken it to, you know, we just hit the Titanic and the water's rushing in and we're bailing ourselves out with a thimble. Yeah. Like that's how it feels. We've got something in the neighborhood of a $2.5 billion infrastructure gap in Indianapolis, a deficit where that's how much money it would take today to just Mm -hmm. bring all of our existing infrastructure up to par. That's not like new and shiny anything. It's not sidewalks on every street. It's just drivable, not going to, you know, break your axle (laughs) street conditions. So we have to change that because right now at the state level, you know, County lane 300 South in Boone County, which is maybe not even quite two lanes, um, is counted the same as Keystone Avenue, which that just makes absolutely no sense. Because obviously when we talk about maintaining infrastructure, we talk about lane mile costs. Right. And that doesn't work if you have an eight lane road. So it's, we have to change that. And really until we have a state legislature that prioritizes Indianapolis as the economic engine of this city and thereby needing a more fair lane mile ratio, that's not going to happen. And I would even add further to that, that someone had pointed out to me, um, 
on Twitter once that they could not find on a map another city in Indiana that had no state roads in it. And if you look at it, you can squint and you can say like, well, okay, so 465, or not, excuse me, 465, but like Washington Street, like US 40 outside of yeah. Washington Street, US 31 outside of 465 kind of pokes in a little bit. But basically once you hit 465 inside of that, there are no state roads. And so a place like a Terre Haute or a Kokomo where they've got uh, a US 31 or a US 40 as quote unquote main street that is maintained by the state, um, that is a, an infrastructure cost that those cities don't have to bear. Right. Whereas we do for every mile inside of 465. Yeah, and, and we have we have more lanes on those. Than yeah, Justin, we have 33 percent of the lane miles in the state of Indiana, and we yeah. get somewhere between 10 and 11 percent of the funds. Very good. So it's just yeah. fantastic. I mean, that's it's it's a losing. <laughs> right. It's just math. We're going to lose every single year. It doesn't matter how much we spend on infrastructure. We're always going to be behind the eight ball. Yeah, and and so when you look at this sort of situation, do you look at this and you think, ah, uh, well, this this is a solvable problem in that. Like it's a politically possible situation that that a bunch of rural legislators from other parts of the state will be like, you know what, Indianapolis should have more money for this. Well, I think I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, obviously, it's hard to convince any rural legislator that they should get a smaller piece of the pie, right? Because they view their charge as getting the most they can for their constituents. Sure. But when you really think bigger about the state and the economic viability of the state long term, I mean, without Indianapolis succeeding and growing and continuing to grow and attract jobs and attract density here and be the net donor to the state of Indiana mm-hmm. in the sizable, very disproportionate way we are currently compared to other metropolitan areas. I really hope that they can shift their thinking into thinking about supporting Indianapolis infrastructure as an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just the way I talk to my constituents who don't ever plan on using transit, mass transit. This is how I you know, talk to them about why they should support it because it's really an insurance policy helping those that need the help so that you're keeping, you know, the, the weakest amongst you stronger, which will really help you in the long term. Mm -hmm. So it's really just kind of having a 30,000 square, 30,000 foot view rather than just kind of my own backyard view. And that's, that's a hard argument to make, but it's, I mean, the math tells the story. I mean, Indiana wouldn't be nearly as productive as a state without Indianapolis. Oh, sure. Period. Yeah. And I don't think anyone would dispute that. But, you know, you can't just keep milking the cow. You have right. to feed the cow. Right. Well, let's come back to that just in a second. But kind of circling back to this this regional tax situation here. So looking at the, the proposals that are out there, um, you know, I think a lot of people look at this and think, uh, if you live in Fishers and you, you drive down Benford Boulevard every day and Fall Creek Parkway and come downtown, uh, you spend a third or more of your day, uh, every day, every workday anyway, uh, in Indianapolis, therefore you should help pay for some of that. And so when we talk about the funding mechanism, I think most people probably just gravitate towards some sort of commute tax, like either like on drivers of some kind that, that produces you know, revenue for roads. So how do we look at this and say to ourselves, okay, well, how do we do this so that way it's not just making roads just bigger so that way people who can live in Fishers can just get downtown faster through all of the neighborhoods? Or if you live in Carmel, we should just widen up 31 by eight more lanes. Again. Again. <laughs> and, you know, rip up some nice homes in through there and just sort of, you know, make that a, a, a shoot. Yeah, no, I, I, this is one of my favorite things about strong towns is that, you know, the principle of we probably already have enough. Let's just use it more effectively and let's activate what we have. Sure. And we, we do not need more roads. I mean, now all through my district, you know, we're looking at purposeful traffic calming mm-hmm. and things so that 
we can activate multimodal transportation so mm-hmm. that we're not just adding cars to the streets. But back to your back to your question, you know, Justin, I think it's just really important that we we just look at our taxing structure at the state level because, you know, right now, I think we're the largest city in the country where all are. of the taxes go to where you live yep. and none go to where you work. Yeah, I think that, and that's just insane. That makes us, I think, the only and city. And clearly it's not sustainable. I mean, look yeah. at it. I've, I've had the good fortune to travel to several other cities and even a few countries in the past few years. And I can say solidly that Indianapolis has the worst infrastructure of any place I have been. <laughs> and, and I've been to a wide variety of places, um, mm-hmm. some that wouldn't even be considered first world. And it is, it's ridiculous. Now, to be fair, we also have record setting freezes and thaws every year. Sure. And that makes any infrastructure maintenance really, really difficult. I had compared these ones to a slow moving natural disaster. It is. That, if, that yeah. if a tornado hit Indianapolis and a bunch of trees fell on the road for the next couple of days, we'd all be like, oh man, that was that was rough. And we'd understand why there was a tree in the road. But we don't seem to understand why a freeze and a thaw and a yes. freeze and a thaw and a freeze and a thaw yeah. over a period of months is, is like a slow moving months long tornado to our roads. Or even just all of this rain that oh, sure. prohibits yeah. us from, you know, from the crews getting out there, you know, it, it, it does feel like we've been fighting a bit of an uphill battle, but that said, you can't do anything without the right funding sources. Mm -hmm. So we have to re-examine that funding and say, okay, how can the 13th or 14th largest city in the country survive when it's not getting any of the taxes that most cities get? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just, we, the, the state owes it to us and owes it to themselves to really look hard at that. And, you know, it's our jobs to be advocates for that at the state level. I mean, I'm a city councilor. Everything I do and vote for is in the county, but that doesn't mean I can't pick up the phone and talk to my state legislators and say, guys, we're drowning here. Right. You know, if you want Indianapolis to remain a strong city, you know, we need to rethink how we're doing the lane mile ratio, you know, the property tax, income tax ratio, all of that just needs to be reevaluated. Do you get a lot of positive um feedback from the state legislators in, in and around Marion County? Like, do they seem receptive to these ideas of rethinking some of these things? Or do you feel like they kind of push back and they're like, oh, I don't know that we have the votes for it. So, you know, blah, blah, I don't, blah. that's a great question. I don't, I don't really know how to answer that. I don't, you know, they've never been outwardly not receptive, but the, you know, but by the same token, I haven't seen any movement. Sure. So I, you know, I think it's time I think we have some really good legislators in and around Marion County. I think they will be receptive and maybe it's just a matter of us making more of a cohesive and concerted effort Mm -hmm. to kind of lobby in that direction. I also think we have a very Indianapolis friendly governor for really, he's really our first Indianapolis governor to my, in my lifetime, I think. I mean, Mitch Daniels kind of lived in and around here. He lived in Carmel, but he worked here. Wasn't he Columbus? Uh, You're thinking maybe of Mike Pence. Oh yeah, Mike Pence is yeah. Columbus. Mitch Daniels lived in Carmel for a lot of times. Yeah, but he wasn't from Carmel. Where's Where's Mitch from? I don't know. Anyway, Somewhere. anyway, Governor Holcomb is Someone definitely will write or Governor Holcomb is an Indianapolis mayor, yeah. so that that can't hurt us. But you know, when a large contingent of the supermajority of Republicans in both houses are rural, that is that can be difficult. But I, it's not insurmountable. It is absolutely worth the fight. Presumably people in Fort Wayne and Evansville are having some of these troubles. Oh, absolutely. And even just now, even just regionally, we're getting some critical mass because Carmel and Fishers are feeling this pinch too. Yeah. They're going to feel it more probably over the next 
10, 15, and 20 It's years. already started. I mean, yeah. trust me, they're already kind of joining forces. So, you know, the, the optimistic part of this is that we're not alone anymore. We're right. not alone in the people who get screwed by far the most. <laughs> like we still get screwed by far the most, but other people are also feeling that pain and can relate to us and don't just think we're, you know, we're just complaining for no reason. So, so that's we, a good can thing. Can we change all the signs as you come into town and be like, welcome to Indianapolis. We're no longer screwed quite the most. <laughs> can that be our new I think thing? That might be a little premature. A little too much? Put, okay. Put that on the, in the parking lot okay, for now. Okay, we'll put that later. So for better or worse, for some people um, right now in Indianapolis, the biggest um, infusion of funding for a lot of the infrastructure improvements, particularly in your district, is from Indigo. Um, just yeah. by just by means of the red line funding, yeah. about, I think a third of it um, is earmarked just for things like drainage improvement, sidewalks, road repairs, Absolutely. that sort of stuff. Yep, resurfacing, et resurfacing, et and so I, and you know another third I think is for the buses and the actual stations, and yep. another third is for operations. Yep. And so, you know, I see a lot of people on Facebook. I'm sure we all do. I'm sure you see a lot more of it than I do. But I see a lot of people who it's it's very strange, right? Where it's like I wish Indianapolis would fix the roads, and then someone comes in and fixes the road, but they happen to put a bus on it, and so suddenly it's bad. Right. Yeah. There, and so you yeah. had some. You've had some really. Um, how shall we say? It, loud people. Uh, outspoken. Unspoken. Outspoken. There you go. Uh, folks in your district yeah. that have been um, really aggressive against these sorts of improvements and just sort of the red line in general, and maybe with good cause, maybe not. We'll see. But it doesn't this seem a little reminiscent to you of when the Monon yeah. was being constructed and the cultural trail and the cultural trail, and this was like this was going to doom yeah. this all, and now we're like, oh, that was fantastic, but. And so like, well, so what are your thoughts on this? Like what's happening with that in your district? Do you feel like you hear more positive things than negative? I mean, we see it from the vote totals that more people voted for it than not. So that's yeah. something. Well, it bears repeating that almost 65, I think it was 64.7% of my district voted for the referendum, which I right. do want to clarify again, red line phase one was happening no matter what. That wasn't sure. part of the referendum, except for a tiny piece of like one quarter next year of some operational expenses, mm -hmm. but it was a minuscule amount of money. So the red line phase one was happening either way, but the the referendum, which was the expansion of the red line, the blue and purple lines, as well as the biggest piece, which was a 77% increase in overall mm -hmm. bus service, um, you know, my district supported loud and clear. And with good reason, we, you know, when we started this process, Indianapolis is the 13th or 14th largest metropolitan area in the United States. We were 88th in transit. Mm -hmm. And this only gets us to something like 37th. Yeah, it's, but it's pretty it's, modest. We're still pretty low, yeah. but it's a good start. And I have to say, I have heard way more positive than negative. The, I mean, generally overall, for the most part. Um, and, you know, we have, we have a system that's really meant to magnify the voices of the minority, which is good. I mean, because it's, it's you know, the majority is not always correct and not the best plans aren't always popular. So it's a, it's a good thing that we have to take a harder look at the opposition, but it has been a minority. Sure. It has been a small opposition group. And yeah, the, the benefits of the red line are going to go far beyond just the people who plan to ride. Mm -hmm. So the infrastructure improvements you mentioned that we will all enjoy, um, the traffic flow improvements that are going to come, particularly to the college corridor, I am so excited about. I think it's going to be a much safer, much smoother commute now. So let's talk about that a little bit because yeah. I think a lot of people look at this and they think, okay, well, there's fewer lanes for cars, therefore traffic is worse. Right. How and, is it possible that you can do this and still make traffic flow, quote unquote, better? I'm so glad you asked. So this was my big, this was my big um, issue when I first got elected. I really needed to understand this because I didn't understand either. I was like, right. how, how does this work? This is very counterintuitive. This, yeah. yeah, it doesn't seem logical. 
Um, but really when you, when you make the dedicated lane in the center of the street, you're taking away the two problems that happen every day, every minute, every hour when you're, I mean, I just drove down college to see you tonight mm-hmm. at rush hour. So I just did this. And the two things that hold you up on college are a getting stuck behind an Indigo bus mm-hmm. because they can't get over because of parked cars right. or because they can't get over because it's busy or whatever. And B getting stuck behind someone waiting to turn left. And both of those problems completely go away. So you will never get stuck behind an Indigo bus again because they are in their own lane. They will not mix with traffic on the college corridor. And because of the way the um, stations line up and the addition of turn-only lanes and dedicated turning lanes along the corridor, you will also never get stuck behind cars turning left because there will be green arrows and then green lights through ways every you know, more than every half a mile, but at those bus stops and then some. So yes, we are losing some left turns, but it's actually going to get a lot safer and you're not going to have this constant traffic pattern of speed up, dart around cars and then get, and then slam on your brakes Mm -hmm. and get stuck, you know, speed up, dart around a car, dart around a bus and slam on your brakes and get stuck, which has been my experience driving college for the last 10 years. So I'm really excited even with one lane going away. I think it should be much smoother, much calmer, um, and you should probably travel at about the same rate. Sure. So there was this little um, ballyhoo that popped up um, recently about public safety in terms of like fire truck access and ambulances and other emergency vehicles that, you know, how how on earth, what will happen? We will all burn alive in our homes because, you know, a house is on fire. There's a, a child hanging out the window right there on a burning building and the fire truck cannot get through because there's a BRT vehicle in the way. Is that possible or is that just incredibly insane? That's I, insane, right? I don't, yeah. I don't think that will happen because the we forget that the buses will only be stopping every half mile. Every half mile, yeah. For what, a minute, maybe two minutes, maybe. Well, I think there's other half, concern three, that four. there's like some, there's like a buffer, like a, a median of sorts a, in this. It's a four street. inch tall mountable curb. So it's a beveled edge, four inch. Like it would mess up a lot of low riding vehicles. Mm-hmm. It was specifically chosen for it's the ability of every single public safety vehicle to easily mount that car to mount over that. So the, the media, the center lane median is not a consideration when it comes to this. Um, and the buses, you know, with rare exception, every half mile for a minute or two or whatever the stop time is, you'd have to ask an Indigo official for the exact, right. like, I don't know what like the pit stop yeah. averages are, but you know, that's the only time the buses won't be in motion so, right. and they will be at motion at the speed of traffic. So it's not, you know, I don't think that, but, you know, Chief Malone and Chief Roach, you know, they have a pretty comprehensive public safety plan at this point. It's, you know, I feel like every bit of mud imaginable has been thrown at this system <laughs> and, and not a lot of it. I'm sure stuck. someone is digging a hole yeah. someplace right now. To and now I'm sure there will be glitches. Yeah. I mean, oh, don't sure. get me wrong. This is a new experience for everyone in this city. It's new for Indigo. It's a new size project for DPW. You know, we've not done a project above ground of this magnitude. Mm-hmm. We have the Deep Rock Tunnel is absolutely yeah. this big of a deal, but nobody sees that on a daily nobody basis. Nobody sees that, so that doesn't happen. Yeah, right. exactly. But um, but this is a huge deal. So there absolutely will be hiccups here and there, you know, but we all just have to keep communicating about it and, you know, focus on, we have to be adaptable as this rolls out because we're not going to have, everything won't be perfect in the beginning. You know, but we have to stick with it and adjust and adapt and do what leaders do, which is make it work. I mean, that's our job now. That's Mayor Hogshead's job. That's Indigo's job. That's our jobs as city councilors to keep people informed and to make it work.
So I, I recall that when this sort of stuff first blew up, and I remember thinking to myself, how is this any different than if a school bus had its stop arm out and a child was darting across the road? Or, I mean, God help you if you live on the east side and a train, <laughs> which yeah. goes by, I don't know, yeah. 80 times a day on a conservative estimate at least. You know, like like these things are real problems that sort of cut traffic off. No one, yep. no one seems to think that we'll all die because of that. Well, so. we sometimes we forget that personal responsibility and personal accountability is still our first line of defense, right? Right. Educating yourself about traffic safety, educating your children about traffic safety. You know, making sure, for instance, in my neighborhood, we have, you know, very narrow streets, parking on one side of the street you know, people tend to drag race between stop signs, which is crazy and annoying. But, you know, some of my neighbors every now and then say, hey, we need speed bumps. And I just have to remind them, you know, look, if every single person here wants a speed bump, fine. But how about we just reinforce to all the neighborhood children, don't run after your ball without looking both ways when it falls into the street, you know, and, you know, reinforce driver safety as well. But, you know, pedestrian safety, and resident safety is just really important to remind me, people of because you are you are your own line of first defense. Sure. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask this because I'm sure there's a bunch of strong towns folks listening to this right now that look at this and sort of the purest view of this is that this is not the sort of world that we should live in where we should all fear the car, that the infrastructure should just be designed in such a way that everywhere, you know. Which, that it's always it's multimodal always just, and pedestrian it's friendly. It's always pedestrian friendly. Right. So if the child throws their ball out in the middle of the street by accident, that it will be more or less fine. Yeah, because and the cars are going slow enough that they'll see Because the cars are going them. slow enough that right. it will all work out. And now granted, Indianapolis yeah. is Indianapolis as it is today. And so this is sort of like a lot of debates that we have, right? That, that it's okay, well, we can figure out ways maybe we can get to that point in more places. But this is, yeah. we've got, we've ended up where we, we are five like neighborhoods. generations, right? I think we have five neighborhoods that are... You know, I learned something. I was on a, um, what was it, the American League of Cities, the U.S. League. I always forget the name, but we were on a panel talking about transit last week. And I was reminded that Indianapolis is 400 square miles. That's big. That means we can fit three Clevelands or three Bostons mm -hmm. in our city limits, which is kind of insane. Yeah. So, you know, I try to have a lot of patience when I'm dealing with constituents or speaking with constituents who just don't buy the, we don't have to have one car per income mm -hmm. in this house, right? They just don't buy that because we have had such a greater dependency on cars yeah. than other metropolitan areas because it really just wasn't really possible right. to live in Indianapolis without a car if you were employed, right? It just wasn't yeah. more than most metropolitan areas. So I try to have- it's not unreasonable that a person might live it, it, on the Northwest side exactly. and, and live or you know work yeah. or commute to yeah. Lawrence. I grew example. up in Zionsville. It was inconceivable that you wouldn't have two cars per right. two adult household, right? That you was, probably should have three for two in case one breaks down. Well, you, <laughs> and, right? and every single teenager that was involved in school had, you know, it was just, it was a very yeah. car centric culture. Um, and that wasn't necessarily tied to socioeconomic status. That was just necessity, yeah. right? If you had a, a jalopy or if you had a, a rolls, I mean, you were, you, you had, had to a have car. a car. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just have to remind myself that that is, that's the world in which we're all living in and that we've been in for this past hundred years. And now it's changing and it's hard to embrace that change. But I would say there's five walkable neighborhoods in Indianapolis where, you know, that multimodal pedestrian friendly, non-car centric, it, you know, philosophy exists. Is, yeah. Now, not maybe not consistently throughout each neighborhood, 
but we have that. But the issue with Indianapolis is we just need more of that. We need to help mm -hmm. that spread. We need more neighborhoods that are walkable and self-sufficient and all of the things that Strong Towns really promotes. Because right now what's happening is those five neighborhoods, the property values are increasing very rapidly. Demand is becoming so intense. And it's we need to spread that out so that we don't over-gentrify and over-displace and we help other neighborhoods become stronger and we're not just making five neighborhoods even better and better right. and better and better. We're helping all the neighborhoods become strong. So that's kind of, I think the place we're in now. And I do see that changing. I see a lot of steps in that direction. Sure. Well, so let's talk a little bit then about these neighborhoods and a big part of that is, is affordable, strong, resilient housing stock. Yes. And um, there's been some news lately in the Indianapolis star about sort of the conditions that people live in with, generally just slumlords, just, you know, lousy land owners, property owners that don't take care of properties in the sense that, uh, you know, having running water or heat or electricity, even in some cases. And by and large, our regulatory environment is kind of hands off about a lot of this stuff. I think that's fair. Um, I think the general approach for most people would be like, well, just don't live there. Right. That, yeah. that market forces would generally just sort of push. Sure. It's like, oh, well, this is a lousy hole because it doesn't have and that, plumbing or electricity. Yeah. And so I will just not live here and then it will sort of work itself out. That doesn't change if you live, move someplace and then it doesn't have electricity or, you know, then the water stops or whatever. And then you're sort of stuck, which I think is how a lot of people end up in this situation. But we've got some renewed discussions about what do you do to hold land owners or property owners accountable for when these conditions arise and people are sort of living in just abject squalor or at least unacceptable conditions yeah. by most I mean, measures. Yeah. So what do we do about that? Like, it's, do you have any thoughts about it's it? It's really hard. Yeah. And we have, unfortunately we have some landlords who are completely gaming, gaming the system. I mean, they are just, I mean, we're dealing with something on the far East side. Now the Oak tree apartments that mm -hmm. has been like a 15 year disaster and it's, you know, being battled in the courts and, you know, we've tried, the city has condemned, all of these properties and tried to um, try to raise the whole complex mm -hmm. because it's just the, the amount of crime mm -hmm. and drugs and illicit behavior and just unhealthy, everything that's taking place there. You know, not only is it costing us millions and millions and millions of dollars of tax money a year, but it's also just completely inhumane. But, you know, we wind, we wound up in a legal battle for that. And I'm dealing with that in my district right now with Lakeside Point which, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, the free market dictates and just don't live there. But what's happening is that, you know, they're being sold something that isn't real. Mm -hmm. They see a model unit. Right. Then they move into their, their unit. Nothing's the same. They give a deposit. They don't get it back when they decide to move. So then they're out one month's rent or two months rent yep. or whatever it is. So then that, that just puts them further behind. And like in Nora, we have the second largest immigration immigrant population in the county with the Burmese. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't have first, first language English speakers, right? Sure. So you don't, you don't have a population and that's, you know, I'm not saying that the Burmese are the only ones that are moving into Lakeside Point, but you know, you, you have populations who aren't able to advocate for themselves and don't have anyone in their corner. And you have landlords that are breaking the law right. and who are not, you know, not following any city codes. And in the Lakeside Point, um, case, they're not even paying taxes. Somehow they're tax exempt. They're running, a, yeah, they're running a not, <laughs> not for profit. And that's just, so we're just getting kind of, you know, again, screwed kind of from both ends, right? Like we're, we're spending all these millions of dollars right. on health and hospital going out, 
business and neighborhood right. services, code enforcement checks, all this stuff. And then whatever si social services these people need because they're displaced or because they don't have right. hot water or because they get sick from mold infestations or rat infestations or road. I mean, it's really disgusting. It's, yeah. it's really, really, really bad. And we're paying for that. So, you know, the question is, how do we hold them accountable? And right now, I mean, we can hammer them with code enforcement violations. Health and Hospital did a, did a sweep. I mean, the key is kind of converging all city agencies on them at once and then adding the, the, um, the element of public pressure. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the Lakeside Point, we really need to lobby the state, like the um, Board of Zoning Appeals, to revoke their not-for-profit status. Sure. Like, so... You know, what we're trying first is we're just trying to get them to sell. We're trying to put pressure on them to sell the development to a responsible developer who will take care of it and take their responsibility seriously as a property owner, which, right. you know, again, sort of a market movement thing. But, you know, if they refuse to sell, then we have to kind of hit them on both sides. And it's really, this is the hardest part about city government because you really don't want to tell business owners how to run their business. Right. You don't want to tell people where to live. You want to give everyone the option and you want to let the market decide. But at the same time, you have to have the same set of rules for everyone. And somehow you have to enforce all those rules. So do you feel like, um, like, so what are some things that this, like a lot of this would be a state level um, legal issue, right? Because the city doesn't have a lot of levers that could pull here. And so what the, are some of the, the city things has health code, the city has health code violations and in right. other, but in terms of like violations. new, new sort of, of regulations, yeah. like, like, I don't know, off the top of my head, could you make a law that says, uh, if you're going to own X number of properties in Indiana, you have to live here. Like, would yeah, that do something? I mean, that's so, all. And I, I say that yeah. because there's the the situation on the east side in Irvington with the Irvington Plaza, ah. where that owner is in Florida. And I think that there's there's um, some issue there with just the, the, that the owner is just disconnected from it. It's like, well, he doesn't have to see it. He doesn't live here. Right. The pressure just isn't really on. Because oh, like how. Out of state landlords are a huge problem across my whole district. I mean, right. it's generally not the local landowners that are an issue. Right. For that reason. I mean, it's top of mind. They live here. They're invested in the community. You know, when you're, I, I think it is a lot of out of sight, out of mind. And I think it's really easy to think of your investments as just numbers on paper, mm -hmm. you know, when you're not there to see, you the know, condition the condition of your building. So we, we deal with this in Broderpool all the time. Right. Um, but I know it's a citywide issue. So I, I'm totally up for some creative suggestions. You know, obviously I worry about over-regulation and over-prescription. Yeah. yeah, this is definitely <laughs> it, a slope we're on. It's hard, yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. on a slope. You've I don't gotta, know if it's slippery, but we're on a slope. <laughs> yeah, we have to be really careful when we're infringing on civil liberties and property right ownership, property ownership rights. But, but no, I think it really bears some consideration because it – the Oak Tree Apartments is the best example of a complete boondoggle. I mean, this should, you know, the landlords of the Oak Tree Apartments were probably in violation of every code for mm. many, many years. And yet the city still was unable to do what it needed to do. And was that because we just didn't have enough code enforcement officers or that there just wasn't enough resources to sort of build a case? Or was it? Honestly, I think it was more just some legal slippery slope stuff. And I don't, yeah. this happened quite a bit before my time. Right. Now we're just kind of dealing with the aftermath of it. But I think there's some real legal challenges probably to such a law that you just presented, right? Like maybe we should regulate. And I know like other countries do that, right? You can only own, like I think in, um, I think it's Bali. You can only own property in Bali if you're Balinese. Sure. <laughs> you know, so I mean, there it's not unheard of. 
But I think we need to think very carefully about both the legality of such things and the enforceability of such things, you know, and what the unintended consequences are. Because what I'm finding is that a lot of best intentions have some pretty intense consequences that just aren't accounted for when they go into action. So, you know, my preference rather than make more laws and put more regulations in is always to try to somehow incentivize the market to clean it up. But as you know, I mean, that doesn't always work. Yeah. And we can't, we cannot have our neighbors living in squalor. Right. Or it doesn't work to the level that a community might prefer. A a community this diverse with this many needs. I mean, I think there are, it's a lot easier when you have a much less diverse populace with more um, concentrated needs. Mm -hmm. You know, when you know what a population or a specific demographic needs, you can kind of tailor the community to meet those needs. When a community has to meet every need for everything from transient students to immigrant population to, you know, non-transit minded commuters, you know, you when you have every kind of person in great number, it becomes much more challenging to make all of those regulations and ordinances work mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't just become really top heavy. So I'm going to ask a, a kind of a hard question here because when I see stories like the star broke out this week about the lakeside stuff and, and these apartments that are kind of in squalor, the framing of it was, and I saw their tweets. It was the framing of it was the guy who owns this lives in a multi-million dollar Geist mansion. He's got like a yacht trying to basically the framing is like, here's a rich guy. Here's a probably a rich white jerk kind of a guy. And look at these poor people over here and the conditions that they live in. And sometimes when I look at these situations, I think to myself, is this happening because this is in Indianapolis? Or could this sort of thing, would this sort of thing happen if that apartment complex were in Carmel or another suburb? Oh, oh, I thought you were going to go the other direction and say, would it happen in New York City? Oh, no. Interesting. I I mean, I, I think to myself, like, if this, if that apartment complex was north of 96th Street, would it be in the same condition? You know, you that's think? a really good question. I All I mean, things else being equal, the terms of the people that live there and, and sort of the well, socioeconomic think, issues and stuff. I don't think you can say all things equal because Carmel is an example of a much less diverse demographic. So I don't, I think Carmel's a bad example. Maybe we should try, because I don't think, I mean, yeah, I'm not saying everyone in Carmel is middle class and above, but they do not have the same issues with, um, immigration populations as well as um, abject poverty that we have in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. They just don't have the same level of um, issue with that. So I don't think that's a good example because I don't think, I think all of these conditions would only be present. All of these circumstances would only be present in cities that are really dealing with some pretty intense, lower level socioeconomic status problems sure. in population. So I don't know. I, I would say it would definitely happen in every other big city. Sure. I mean, this is a very common problem and I don't, you know, if there's another city that's figured it out, I would love to hear how they do it. Right. Um, but I don't know if we're talking about the surrounding areas, I'm not sure that the conditions would ever make sense for this to exist there. Okay. I'm not sure. I, that's a, I, yeah. I don't know. It is a hard question because I don't know that that's apples to apples. Well, yeah. Cause I, I approach this and I think about it from the standpoint of, is this, is this a government action thing? Like, like, Sometimes you hear about like, well, Indianapolis, we just don't have enough code enforcement officers to sort of catch think, all these sorts of things. But I like, think that's true to some degree. I mean, I think we are, I think at pretty much every level of city agency, we're underfunded, understaffed, undermanned, underwomaned. I mean, I, <laughs> I was just talking to DPW. I mean, they are 
running skeleton crews right now. They've had so many people leave and retire early. And, you know, we have some really good people who want to work for the city, but the, the pay isn't very competitive. Mm. And so we don't always get, you know, the best and brightest. And it's, we, we have to, we, it's never popular to spend more tax dollars on personnel, on right? Salaries, yeah. That's really hard. But when you think about the output and you think about the return on investment, that's probably the best solution. I mean, we probably start need, needing to invest more in talent and having people who can have careers with the city rather than just, you know, I, our, um, our office of corporation counsel is a great example. So we have, we have very, very talented attorneys that work for the city, mm-hmm. but the pay is very, very low and the work is very, very difficult and they are working so much. And, you know, they'll come in and get a couple years of experience, learn the ropes and, and then go to a, pri- yeah, and then bounce out. So, practice. you know, we spend a year or six months or eight months or whatever is training them, getting them to speed. Then they become a really good lawyer for about a year and then they leave. And then <laughs> right. we have to start the process over again. And, you know, there is such a cost to churn, you know, sure. keeping your back door closed. I mean, I, as a small business owner, I often think about, you know, annoying terms like front door, back door, top line, bottom line, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) You know, I mean, keeping your back door closed has always been something I've thought of. Like, why aren't we just keeping our back? Why do we have to constantly go find more people? How about we just close our back door? Well, the answer is it costs money and we're underfunded and we don't get any money from the surrounding counties to pay for infrastructure. And we, we spend all of our money on public safety. You know, there, every single thing you and I have talked about so far, and I, I'm guessing everything we will continue to discuss is all related. Right. Well, I was about to say, we don't talk about this much in terms of a strong town's uh, mindset here about just general city personnel and the cost of of labor and providing a competitive environment for those people. And I don't think anybody can begrudge anybody else for doing whatever it takes to sort of further their own career, their own self-development. Like what could be more American than that? I just don't know. No. And uh, by and large, um, you know, one example I always come back to is that um, at Indianapolis Animal Control, they had like what, 12 or 13 directors in 10 or 11 years. Oh yeah. I mean, a huge That's turnover a there. That's a hard job. Um, and I think it was in the IBJ that they had reported that, that we pay about 25, maybe even 50% less than like a city, even the size of Louisville yeah. for the same position in that level. Um, and so something has gone horribly, horribly wrong there. And we may just be in a hole at this point, right? Because how do you, who wants to be the mayor who comes out or the city councilor who comes out and says, all right, well, if we're going to make these salaries competitive at sort of all levels of city government, it's going to cost X number of dollars and we're just going to throw it all into that. Yeah. And you, I don't know how you do that when 90% of a city budget is consumed by public safety, yeah. which has yeah. its own staffing problems. We, we see this in the police department yep. where it's vexed two mayors now uh, in a row, at least from a campaign, like a, a high level campaign promise of hiring new police officers. Oh yeah. We're that way behind. We can't that. keep up or we're always behind. And how do you do that when you've got 90% of your budget that goes to public safety and where would this money come from? It'd have to be a tax increase. Well, or we're right back where we started, which get that stupid lane mile ratio change, right? Right. Because then that's the lion's share of our infrastructure budget, you know, and that, and yeah, that's not, that's still only, you know, 10% up to 10%. So we have to figure out public safety is still the big behemoth in the room all the time. I mean, and I really do think there's still some room in the sheriff's budget to make some pretty significant contract cuts. And I just joined the public safety committee. I don't know. It's been w- within a year. So I'm still learning all of the ins and outs of that. But 
but that is really where the lion's share of our dollars go. But, you know, like we have one of the more progressive fire departments in the country. I mean, we do very creative things with I don't fire think, funding. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say a bad thing about our fire department. Our fire anywhere. department's pretty ever. rad. It's pretty yeah, rad. I, I yeah. put them on the same level as our library. Chief Malone service. is incredible. The, the yeah. amount, the, what they're able to do with relatively small amount of funding is pretty incredible. But, but no, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, the answer, constituents hate, when I say this, but there are no quick answers here. Mm -hmm. There's no, I mean, yeah, there's some pork. There's always a few more cuts you can make. There's always a little more efficiency, some more, a few more efficiencies you can realize, but the big answers to the big questions are hard and mm -hmm. they require working with state government. They require rethinking how we use all of it. And it's, it is going to take a really, really bold leader to come in and say, you know, this is what we need as a city this is going to be uncomfortable. You know, we might go backwards in a few areas for mm -hmm. a couple years, but it's going to get us where we need to go in the long run. And kind of because of the nature of politics, I think, you know, there's just not a lot of leaders who are willing to do that. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a hard, it's a tough road to hoe. And, but that's what, that's what it's going to need. We're going to need really bold leadership moving forward. Do you think that Indianapolis is just a cheap city? <laughs> Like, well, we talk about this a lot, right? We talk about this idea that Indianapolis is an affordable place. Like, come here, yeah. it's, it's affordable. You can, you can buy, look how much house you can buy, and right. look how much of this right. you can buy, whatever. And a lot of times, those things may or may not factor in the cost of a car or other transportation to sort of sure. make up for the sort of land use policy. We are actually one of the most expensive transportation cities yeah, in we the are. country. And, but and we're so, super low on cost of living and housing. Cost of living and housing, and other like than groceries and those sorts of things. Right. And so, you look at this and it's like, well, these things have a cost, right? So electricity is cheap, but that's because we burn coal for all these years and just very recently switched to some, you know, uh, uh, other power sources like natural gas and whatever. But do you think Indianapolis is just cheap? Because I think that that's starting to become a bit of a, I don't know that saying that they've come here because it's a lower cost of living is having the same marketing punch as it necessarily could. Because I think a lot of people look at it and it's like, well, Indianapolis, like here's a street. There's no drainage and there's no sidewalk and <laughs> there's no bike lanes uh, and it'll you said fall my, apart. My least favorite of... word in the English language, drainage. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Nobody talks about drainage, but you know, it's, are you it's an I talk part. about drainage it's every an, day. It's an important thing. And so, Ugh. you know, we look at these things and it's just like, is, is Indianapolis just cheap? You know, I think, I don't know that I'd use the word cheap. I mean, I mean, I guess yes, but let's parse it a little bit. I mean, I think Indianapolis was built by leaders, you know, 50-ish years ago that chose to invest in other things, mm -hmm. right? When when Hudna and all of these kind of formative leaders of the city were shaping the city, they invested in what they considered to be long-term wins. So sports, stadiums pharma, and, biotech, yeah. stadiums, conventions, bringing people here. And I think for the large, for the most part, that has served us well. And Indianapolis also, rather than maybe saying we're cheap, I think, I think Indianapolis is a very thoughtful city. I think, you know, it's, we have never historically been on the cutting edge of new technology, new ways to spend money, new, any of that. We've been very thoughtful about. And that could be a good thing, right? I, we can I look at other cities say, and say, well, they screwed that up. Let's not do that. Exactly. Right? I think for, I think. I would put it at maybe an 80-20. I think 80% of that has served us very well. Right. But you can't just keep going. You have to then take all of the data points and say, okay, now here's how we have to act. And that does require bold leadership. I mean, the red line took 10 years plus mm -hmm. to really happen and was the vision of more than one mayor. Mm -hmm. I mean, essentially. 
and, and a chamber and a, and a regional transit group. I mean, it was, Mm -hmm. it took a lot of people to move that uphill. Same with the Monon, same with the cultural trail. I mean, and the, the things we have gotten behind to do that I would consider progressive have been game changers. I mean, and, and they've been great and they were absolutely met with a massive amount of resistance there, albeit by a small sure. minority of people, but you know, it's, it's not easy doing anything, um, that's transformative, but no, I think, I think we've been thoughtful. I think we could use, I think we could use a little bit more risk tolerance to be fair. I, I mean, think, I think yeah. we, I think it's time for us to get a little bit, you know, I think the Super Bowl sort of changed the mindset of the city a little bit. Mm-hmm. At least I felt it. I think so too. And this was long before I was involved in any sort of public service. I was just a little business owner, but I just remember that week, you know, Indianapolis has always kind of been this unsung hero. I mean, we just kind of quietly go about our business. Mm-hmm. We don't brag about our economy. We don't mm-hmm. brag about our tech jobs. Like that hardworking guy at the office yeah. that just shows up, does the job and yeah. then goes home. We're, right? we're not sexy. We don't think of ourselves as that flashy city with lots of pretty everything and blah, blah, blah. Right. But I think the Super Bowl sort of, at least it woke me up and I went, whoa, this city's awesome. This city's actually great. Like other people are coming to Indianapolis and loving it just because of, just because we are who we are, mm-hmm. not because we tried to be anybody else. And I think that is sort of, that's sort of how we have to map out the next 20 years, right? We don't need to be the next Austin, Texas. We don't need to be the next Portland or Nashville or Charlotte. We just need to be the best Indianapolis we can be and know that that is enough. Now, are benchmarks helpful and best practices? Mm-hmm. Yes. And we need to continue to borrow the best of what everyone's doing. We don't, we don't have to reinvent any wheels here, but I do think it's time for us to sort of feel ourselves a little bit better, a little bit more and say, you know what, this is a great city and we can be, you know, we don't need to ever be braggadocious or glitzy, you know, or glamorous, but we do really need to start giving ourselves credit for what we do. Right. And we do a lot of things, right. The infrastructure situation is something that, we have to solve. And I believe we will solve it, but it obviously it's going to take a concerted effort of not just Indianapolis leaders to get done. So you sort of stumbled across the seed of something there that Aaron Wren, who's been writing a lot, um, he's is an Indiana native, works now at the Manhattan Institute, and recently um, published a, a piece about how Indianapolis, uh, and other cities too, but specifically Indianapolis, because he's got uh, strong Indiana ties, needs to figure out sort of like how Nashville has, where they've sort of built an economy around country music. Like like Nashville means music. And, you know, Austin and Portland have sort of these nice, yuppie, urban, cool, hip vibes. New York is kind of on a level unto itself. DC is too, because of the nature of its work. San Francisco is a tech hub in Silicon Valley in general, right? And so you may have stumbled across the seed of something there, because how do you market that? Like here's Indianapolis, we're enough. <laughs> like, yeah, like I mean, you know, how do you I, turn this into a thing that the chamber just, can, can so, run with? Right? Well, so my, my background is actually largely in marketing and hospitality. So I've, I consider myself more knowledgeable about this than some topics you could ask me about. And, you know, I'm just kind of, we'll get to those next. I, great. Can't wait. Can't <laughs> wait. I'm sure you will hammer me. Um, no, I'm just kind of of the opinion that we don't need a catchphrase. We don't need a keep indie weird or mm-hmm. a music city. Cause frankly, Nashville Nashville has kind of jumped from bustling, awesome town to like supremely unaffordable mm-hmm. in a couple of years. I don't want to be Nashville. I mean, I'm, That's am, fair. I, yeah. am I jealous about some of their transit initiatives? Yes, but I'm not jealous about the price tag for that. Right. I don't want to be Nashville. I think they have kind of gotten a little too big for their britches recently. And, you know, it's still a fun place to go have a bachelor at weekend, but I couldn't afford to live there. No way. 
So I don't, I don't think we need to, I don't think we need to have a catchphrase. I think, and yeah, obviously our tagline probably shouldn't be Indianapolis war enough. I mean, it sounds like we've been to a lot of therapy, yeah. right? Indianapolis, we've been to a lot of therapy and now we like ourselves, you know? Yeah, so we, we need should, a bigger sign for yeah, all of that. We should avoid that. But I don't think we have to pigeonhole ourselves as a food Mecca or a craft beer Mecca or the sports Mecca or the biotech, you know, hub or the whatever. I think we can really just present a well-rounded community that's good at a lot of things that has awesome people, which honestly people is our best resource. We have so many great, not just talent, but just local leaders, neighborhood leaders, people involved in the municipal level, not just in government. I mean, obviously at the neighborhood level and all the nonprofits, I mean, our public private partnerships just kick ass. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's that's very Indianapolis, right? That's very, yeah. I mean, we're, we're all about teamwork and collaboration and not getting caught in the weeds of ideologies and political feuds and all that stuff, right? That's what we sell. And I don't think you have to say that. I think you just are that. And people get it when they come here. I can't tell you how many people I've had move here sort of begrudgingly for a job or like just not super <laughs> right. excited, right? Like, oh, Indianapolis, oh, yay, cornfields, yay, Indy 500, whatever, right? right? They know one thing about the city. And then they get here and they're like, I had no idea. This is amazing. And they can't even really say why. They just really like mm-hmm. it. And I think as long as we keep doing that, I think we're going to be fine. I don't think we need a shtick. I think we can fit that on the sign too. Indianapolis. I don't think we need you'll, a sign. You'll get, it when, you'll get it when you live here. Indianapolis. Yeah, live here. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> there you go. All right. We'll get that over to the chamber. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Colleen Fanning, this has been a lot of fun. Um, we'll wrap this up here and I'll, I'll ask, where can people find out more information about you and and follow you online? Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Justin, for having me. Um, I have a website, ColleenFanning.com, spelled just as it sounds. And I'm all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Hit me up on there. Um, I write a blog. I try to communicate with constituents in every way imaginable. It's really hard to have 40,000 individual conversations, you know, but I do my best to really expound upon difficult votes or issues happening in and around district two or the city. So you can always follow me there and you can email me at fanningindy at gmail.com. Um, and I have, I have an answering machine at the city County building that I check a lot. So yeah. An answering machine. Well, like, is it's, it like it's a, a like live a, human. Okay. It's, it's a live, I know. I expected answering, you're right, like, a, like a white or like I'm a, a child beige of the box 80s. with a button. Yeah. I'm push, a child of the eighties. So that it beeps or yeah, something. That term just came out before was I really like thought a tape? it through. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, and anyone under the age of 30 doesn't even know what an answering machine is. So ignore the fact that I just had a little slip there, but um, yeah, it's an answering human at the city okay, County very building. Good. Um, and yeah, I look forward to seeing everybody. It's, it's an election year, so I'm going to be out and about, you know, hopefully not that much more than normal because I've got a lot of work to do, Sure. (laughs) but you know, I'm sure you'll see me. So always say hi. I welcome, I welcome all views. I'm certainly not afraid of a disagreement, which is good because in my district, that's, I feel like sometimes that's all there is, (laughs) which is okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's all about trying to build some momentum and consensus and just doing the job every day and trying to get it done. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time here today, everyone. This has been the Strong Indie Podcast. Thanks for joining us.